Come out. All right. Sorry. Hey. All right. Hey, make sure you grab your sheets off the uh, majiggy, that beautiful, gorgeous thing on wheels over there. Go, yeah, you, yes, all, these, all of these ladies and that thing over there. So uh, by all means, come, come as close as you want. Sandy feels very lonely here at this table up front. So, you know, anyone can come up here. Um, thank you so much for coming. We're going to dive in. If you, I'm going to pray. And if you ladies will do me this favor, when people come in, make sure they know that there's papers for them right there on that lovely cart. And, um, and then flag someone down to sit with you, uh, especially if you're up here like Sandy all by herself. Okay. So, um, thank you for coming to this study. Let me pray. And then I'll give us a little reminder context and then we'll dive in today. We're looking at what Jesus said about, um, what it means to care for the poor. So that's today's focus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us before the foundation of the world and preparing a kingdom for us, which we will inherit by your grace and enjoy in your presence forever and ever. Remind us today what temporary wealth is and remind us to compare it and contrast it with the eternal wealth that only you can give, that is to know you and to belong to you and to share in your life forever. Father, thank you for sending your son to purchase us out of bondage, to pay our debts, to rescue us from our own sin and to rescue us for a world that you are healing through the power of the risen Jesus, your son, our savior. We ask, Father, now in Jesus' name that your hands be open to us and that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit as we look at your word, grant us soft-heartedness in your presence. Help us see new things, but more than that, help us see your generosity, your mercy, your grace, your justice, your kindness. And since this room is full of your daughters, make us your people more like yourself. Bring up these family resemblances in us for your name's sake, to beautify your church, and for the sake of our neighbors, especially those who haven't met you yet. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are studying. Hey, welcome, welcome. Sheets over there if you want to follow along. So this is week four of a five-week. Yes, please, let someone rescue Sandy from her alienation. This is the kind of thing that Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 25. Okay, Um so this is, this is week four of a five-week study, and our goal, how about this? You tell me this week, what, what is our goal of these five weeks of going through the Bible? What, what, what do we, what do we, what's our goal? Yes. Yeah, to, to hear what God says about himself and his relationship to the poor, and what God says about his people and the poor. Right, that, that, that's our goal, right? There could be lots of other goals, um, but the goal of this five-week study, because we started in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We did the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. Quick, big summary. We did the prophets, right? Hit a tiny percentage what they say about caring for the, the poor. Uh, and then we did the wisdom literature, right? And then we moved from that Today, we're, we're going to look at the Gospels. Just does Jesus ever hit these topics? Um, and what does he say about them? And next week, we're going to do a tiny percentage of what the New Testament says about these things. We're going to focus on the Apostle Paul. So we're not even going to look at like James and 1 John next week. Both letters hit this very directly, but we don't have time to do all that. So we're just hitting, hitting the highlights of what God says about himself uh, the poor and his people and the poor. And it's a, it, what we're seeing, I think so far consistently, it's a pretty, there's a pretty consistent thread through the Bible. So when the Bible talks about the poor, what are the classes of people that always show up in these lists? 
Who, what, what kinds of people get referred to consistently among the poor? Who? who? The fatherless and the widow are always on the list. When there's a list, when the poor is delineated into different categories, the fatherless and the widow are always on the list. Who else makes the list consistently? The sojourners, the Gur. Remember, uh, Moses had a son named Gershom. And what, what is Gershom's name? He meant weirdo from a weird place. Stranger in a strange land. Because Moses had lived as a foreigner in Egypt. And now he's in Midian. And he's married the daughter of a pagan priest. So he's been an Egyptian in Egypt. Now he's an Egyptified Hebrew in Midian. So the first 80 years of Moses' life, he's a weirdo in a weird place. And so his son is named Gur Shum. And I'm emphasizing Gur because that's the Hebrew word for sojourner. And what it really means is a foreigner. So the sojourner is the person who is running for their lives and they're passing through where you live. And God expected his people to to meet the needs of widows, to meet the needs of the fatherless, to meet the needs of the gur, the gurim, those passing through who, who were running from evil politicians, who were running from murderers, who were running from whatever persecution, who were running for whatever reason, right? Uh, God expected his people to take care of those people. So widows, orphans, uh, sojourners, so widows, fatherless, sojourners. And then the last category is just the poor in general. There's actually quite a bit of laws about that. So in certain situations, most people in the ancient world, and the Hebrews were definitely like this, they were farmers, agrarian peasants is what the most of them were. And if you had a bad season, uh, it could wreck you. And so there were laws like, we didn't even look at the law, the Jubilee laws, or even the Sabbath laws in the Pentateuch. We skipped a lot of big stuff. Um, but we talked about the gleaning laws a little bit, that when you gleaned your field, you didn't go to the edges and you didn't go over twice so that the poor may come and work in your field, but go home and feed their families, right? So, but the Jubilee law was like this. The hogwoods are doing great. The holts aren't doing so great. And so what we can do is basically sell them our land. We'll work it and feed ourselves, but they'll sustain us. And then, but in, after seven cycles of seven years, um, we get our land back. And that was the, the, the law of the Jubilee. And so uh, that was for anyone who ended up poor in Israel without judgment. Right. And so that, 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 so there's a lot, there are a lot of laws. So in the, in the old Testament, you had pretty much four classes of people that God said, you take care of them, the fatherless, the widow, the girl, the stranger, the foreigner, the traveler who's just needs help, homeless, poor, something like that. And just the poor in general, anyone who's just um, economically poor, who doesn't have what they need to support themselves and their family. That's the categories. Okay. So in the old Testament, when you care for these people, what are the different terms that God calls it? When he says to his people, hey, care for these people, what does God call that? What's one thing he calls it? Mercy and compassion. It's one thing he calls it. You know, God is open-handed to you, so be open-handed to your brother. All right, what's another word that God applies to taking care of widows and orphans and sojourners and the poor? Justice, right? Remember that? In the Old Testament, right, it's just, it's right. It's the right thing to do to meet the needs of these people. It's just, right? And so that's, that's sometimes is confusing for us. Um, and, and, and sometimes in our context, things like showing mercy and compassion and generosity feel like voluntary acts of love, and they can be, right? But from God's perspective to see people in their need and respond to them, that's the right thing to do. It's not extra credit, <laughs> right? It's just, it's how God's people live because that's how God relates to us. God moves to us in our great need and in super abundant ways, makes us his children, adopts us, pulls us out of darkness, pulls us out of death, pulls us out of rebellion, takes, cancels our debts, gives us his son's righteousness and makes us heirs of an eternal kingdom, the value of which we today can't fathom or imagine. Everyone in this room who believes in Jesus, you are way more wealthier than it's ever dawned on you. 
When Jesus shows up with the glorified kingdom and invites you to share it with him at that great wedding feast of the lamb and then enter into the, the kingdom of the father, the father's prepared for you for, before the foundation of the world. When you get there, it's a jaw-dropping moment. No, you're, we're not gonna believe just how wealthy we are. And that's actually used in the New Testament quite often as a motivator for present living in courage and faith and hope and serving others. Because actually our resources are just way beyond what we presently understand. And not just economically, but spiritually. It's the season of Easter. <laughs> Jesus Christ died for us. And if you believe in Jesus, you died to him, to your old way of being human. Now we don't have time today, but we could, we could spend 20 minutes talking about the old way of being human that we still have to fight every day, right? But if you believe in Jesus, you have already died with him spiritually You've died to the old way of being human. And at the core of that old way of be, being human is to be selfish, is to be committed to your own well-being, your own prosperity, your own privileges, your own rights, my way, right? That's the core of the old way of being human. Well, if you believe in Jesus, you've died to the old way of being human and you've been raised with him to the new way of being human, which is to give your life away in love to others. Now, lots of you have been mothers. My mother's in the room, so I don't have to teach you who've raised lots of children that, what it means to die to yourself and give your life away in love because that's basically what most of you've done for lots and lots of years and thanklessly and, and, and lots of us in this room in other ways as well. So there you go. All right, so let's look at our passages. Look in the front today. The very front of today's lesson, God has people in the poor to understand the scriptures. That's our goal. Luke 6, 31 Here's a summary. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Well, we're going to read that in Luke 6 here in a minute, the golden rule. Here's the world that I want to live in. I want to live in a world where everybody else obeys the golden rule. <laughs> I want to live in a world where everybody treats me the way I want to be treated. And, and when you think about it from that way, you understand the, the sheer power and genius of the golden rule. Because everyone wants to be treated with dignity and kindness and deference and patience and love. That's how everyone wants to be treated. And the heart of the golden rule is to simply ask yourself, how do I want to be treated? And just offer that to other people, right? And that includes like actually... Some people might be like, well, parts of me want to be flattered, but really you don't want to be flattered. That's not really what you want, right? At the end of the day, you don't want fake friends. You want real friends, right? So treating others the way you want to be treated does not mean I, um, I always only say nice words. It means if you have cancer, I tell you. If you're, if you're running down a street that leads headlong into disaster, I tell you. But also if I see you have a gift, I affirm you, I encourage you, I give you opportunity to use that gift. So that's what it is. To treat others the way you wanna be treated means to genuinely love one another. So anyway, look at the next phrase. It's really interesting. And this is why you should be really careful in how you relate to your senior pastor. Because <laughs> your senior pastor is the most dangerous person in the room. And that isn't a joke. Luke 20, 46 to 47, Jesus said, beware, beware of the scribes. And look at their heart. Look, this is amazing heart diagnosis. This is on the front page now in the blue square. Okay, sorry, I'm on the front. I'm on the cover. I keep using the cover sheet because there's more than I, anyway, sorry. That's how I manage the excesses. Okay, uh, beware of the scribes. Look at this heart diagnosis. What do they like? They like to walk around in long robes. They like outward signs of their importance. And what do they love? They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts. They love to be treated as the most important person in the room. They love it. And what are they like? These are those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. That's profound heart diagnosis. And I just want you to, the reason I put it on the front today is because we just read the 
prophetic literature and the wisdom literature, if you go back and you can remember some of the tone of the prophetic literature, doesn't this sound like the great and final prophet? I mean, this, this sounds a lot like Amos and Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And what, and what Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and Micah often had to do was to go right at the king or right at the religious leaders and say, you've forgotten everything that God has told us and you're leading God's people off a cliff. And so sometimes the prophets had to say, don't listen to other prophets. You remember what Micah says in Micah chapter two? Micah says, you're always telling us to shut up and the prophets you want, they're always saying that there's more beer and wine for everybody. That's the prophet. The prophets you want are saying you can have your best life now. And that's the prophet says you want. So, so that's, that, that's that, you get that. And you don't get those words from the prophets because Yahweh is an unkind God and the prophets were mean people. You get those words from the prophets because Yahweh loves his people and he sees his people fondling mud, mud creatures and making out with mud puppets when they could be, they could realize they're married to the God who made all things. Does that make sense? So when God speaks those words to the prophets, it's his jealous love for his people. So if you, this Sunday in Sunday school, no matter what class you're in, you'll be, we'll be looking at Isaiah 54 and 55, where God says, hey, I, I'm taking you back. You turned your back on me, Israel, but I, I will have you for myself. And there's a great parallel in Hosea too. So if you want to get ready for this week, I gotta go back to Jesus. If you want to get, uh, get ready for this week, go read Hosea 2, unbelievable parallels uh, to Isaiah 54 and 55 coming this week in Sunday school for all adult Sunday schools. Hosea 2, God, remember, remember the story of Hosea, right? God says, Hosea, marry Gomer because my people are a prostitute and they've taken off with other lovers. And Hosea 2, I think it's like 18, 19, 19, 20, uh, God's, Yahweh says, I will three times, I'll betroth you to myself. And here's what he says, I'll betroth you to myself in righteousness. I'll betroth you to myself in justice and in mercy. I'll betroth you to myself in faithfulness. So that's, that's the heart. When you hear the harsh critique coming from the prophets or from Jesus, right? It's not that God is harsh or unkind or ungenerous. It's because there's jealous love for God, for his people. And he, and he knows that our idols are killing us and he wants to give us life. Does that make sense? But it's true life. And you can have it if you believe in Jesus and you're in the Ukraine today. Because it's light and no darkness can snuff it out. So there you go. Okay, now let's flip over and look at some passages together. I was not thinking this last week when we looked at the five books of the Psalter and we looked at the last Psalm in those five books. But there's an interesting parallel because we're looking at the, the fifth big speech today in Matthew's gospel. That's part of what we're gonna look at, Matthew 23 and 25. Well, there's five big speeches in Matthew's gospel. So just to remember uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is the first kind of conglomeration of Jesus' speeches in Matthew's gospel. Then in Matthew 10, you have these uh, sayings where Jesus is sending out the disciples as missionaries, two by two, and telling them what to do. And at the end of Matthew 10, he tells them how they're going to be treated, and it's not going to be good. There's real parallels with that in Matthew 25. In Matthew 13, there's a, there's a bunch of parables about the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. In Matthew 18, there's all these sayings about what it means to be God's healthy church. But then this is the fifth group of sayings in Matthew 23 to 25. And so we're gonna look at the parts of that today together, okay? So it's just interesting that you have that parallel with the Psalter. Um, and there's some real parallels in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, to what Jesus says here in Matthew 23 to 25. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to love your neighbor and your enemy. In Matthew 23 and 25, and in Luke 6, the parallel, we'll see a lot of that language. So here we go. We'll dive in. Um, in Matthew 23, there are seven woes, and I'm not going to read all of them. I'm going to read four of the seven woes, okay? Um, so just remember, this is Jesus at his prophetic sharpest. But look at who he's going after. 
Mary Magdalene is not getting barked at in this passage. And neither are the widows or the fatherless. It's the religious leaders. So I'm gonna pick up here, Matthew 23, as printed in your notes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The scribes were the teachers of the law, the official, trained, highly educated, wealthier seminary grads. And the Pharisees were like the, they would be like the Christian radio hosts of the day. The people that everyone tuned into to like know, like how are we supposed to really live our lives? Who's giving the best advice to do it the right way now? By the way, if you haven't discovered that Christian radio is full of Phariseeism, come talk to me, because it is. Christians are really good. We're a cottage industry of 47 steps to do it the right way so your kids will turn out perfect. Well, that's the heart of Phariseeism. Okay, anyway, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What does Jesus say the weightier matters of the law are? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, those are the exact things that Yahweh says in Hosea 2, I will betroth you to myself in those things. And that's the heart of the law. Jesus just said the weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy and faithfulness. What passage does that make you think of? What Old Testament passage pops in mind? Micah 6, 8. Hey, your religious practices are bunk, Yahweh is saying through Micah. God who designed them, who loves full-hearted, full-embodied worship, says it's all bunk, but he's shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So there's a real parallel here because um, faithfulness and humility light up, line up. Uh, faithfulness here means I live, I, I, I have entrusted myself to God, so I faithfully walk in his ways. It's not any kind of like self-propelled obedience. Faithfulness is, oh, God has told me how to live and I have power from God to walk in his ways because God is full of grace and truth, right? And so the weightier the matters of the law are justice and mercy and faithfulness. So we now, because of our study, we know exactly what Jesus means by justice, right? Right, there's, not, there's no doubt about that. Um, and so, and then look, look what Jesus says about the tithing. These you ought to have done the weightier matters without neglecting the others. So Jesus is like, yeah, tithing's good. Just don't get it confused with the heart of the thing, which is justice and mercy and righteousness uh, and faithfulness. Make sense? Okay, and then Jesus says one of the most hilarious things ever. You blind gods. So just picture that first of all. Oh, you're the tour gods, are you? Yeah, you're, you're where, imagine, you know, you're going on a trip soon. You're going to go to, to, to the old city of Jerusalem and your God shows up and he's got a cane and a blindfold on and you know he can't see a thing. How do you feel about that, that God? I mean, this is a hilarious comment. You blind guides. And then he says, you strained out a qualma and swallowed a, gam a gamla. So the, the word for gnat and camel are sound very, very similar. And it's a play on words. You're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Number one, that's hilarious. That's a really strong rebuke. But do you see what he's saying? You're, you're killing yourselves over tithing mint, but you don't see the widow next door? You're straining out a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. You've got 87 rules you're following about you know, you know, how you fold your clothes the night before Sabbath, but you don't see the children that live around the corner of you who don't have enough clothes to wear? Like, wh 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 who taught you this? And that's what Jesus is saying. You, you, you're living this crazy rule-bound life, much of which you created for yourself, but you're totally missing the people all around you who God clearly wants you to see and treat with neighborly covenantal, faithful love. Does that make sense? Have we get the, the heart of the rebuke? Okay. Um, so then let's just move on to that passage. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, this is, 
this is strong, <laughs> by the way. Just don't miss that, you know. This is, he's in Jerusalem. This is near the end. He knows what's happening. So like, if I knew you were firing me and, uh, you know, the, the session and the pressure running me off in about a month, I might say these things stronger. Anyway, Jesus, like, he's at the end, right? And like, he's about to be set at the door and he's just laying it out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You've mastered looking spiritual, but I know you, and there's no, there's no substance on the inside. It's not real. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. There actually was a debate about the order in which you uh, clean cups in the first century, which is really funny. Jesus knows that, and he's, he's, and he's not, he's basically saying, goodness, talk about the real stuff. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you were like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. I mean, you talk about throwing down the gauntlet in Jerusalem, where all of the priests and the scribes are hanging out, right? And th their whole livelihood is connected to being impressive. Um, and you, you get the thing, this is, it's a festival season, right? So people have been coming in and what happens, they whitewash the tomb so people don't miss that there's a grave site here, right? What would happen if they touched a grave site? They'd be unclean for seven days. They'd miss the festival. So the, they whitewash the tombs when the, when the pilgrims are coming in so people don't, 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 don't step on that because they would have been ceremonially unclean. So that was a good thing to do. But Jesus is like, yeah, you scrubbed the outside of that. You're full of dead bones. I mean, like that's, you know, he's using their own defilement laws, which he wrote uh, to say the, the, the real defilement's on the inside. That, that, you're, you're, you're defiling people because of who you are. So it's really strong. Um, verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So here's, here's what's interesting. And this is one thing I wanna talk about the word justice of above and the word, and Jesus saying that they're lawless here. And this is, this is a really significant Bible point and a Presbyterian point. So let me try to make it, and then, if, and then you might wanna ask questions, okay? There are all these different views about the law and the grace of God and how that matters to us today, okay? So uh, legalism and various forms of self-righteousness are, if you obey, the, if you obey God, then you're, then you're loved, then you're accepted, whatever. That's crazy, that's terrible, right? Um, we, we've all broken the law, we've all failed, we've all been disobedient, and we all deserve death, right? But by the grace of God, we're rescued and saved. So once you're saved, then there's different views about how the law, why you should even think about the law. Is the law just a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Is it good sometimes, bad sometimes? What, how do you think about the law, right? And so some people post-Reformation who, who have overlapping uh, sensitivities with us, right? Basically, they divide the whole Bible into law, gospel, and you're either hearing law or gospel. Let me go on record to say, I don't really like that way of approaching the Bible because um, that's true. There's, there, there's a way that you can turn even gracious words into some, some list of things you should do, and that's bad. I don't want you to do that. But what, what, what God says from beginning to end is he rescues his people by grace and then he takes up his life within us and teaches us to walk in his ways. Does that make sense? So we already know this already, but we don't apply it consistently. So let me, let me illustrate. Um, how many people in this room have been convinced that you're not always completely honest? Okay, I'm gonna raise every limb that I have. Okay? Um, now, thou shalt not lie is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Have you broken that commandment? Yes, I have too, all right? Did Jesus keep that commandment for you perfectly? He did. Did he pay for all your sins of deception? He did. Now that you're saved in Christ, 
and you're a new person and dwelt by the Spirit, will you become increasingly aware that you're deceptive? You will. Will the grace of God make you more of a liar? It won't. The grace of God makes you more honest. That's one reason why you become increasingly aware that like me, you're deceptive. Does that make sense? But, but the grace of God, it doesn't mean the law doesn't matter. To, walk, to say I'm a Christian, to walk around openly being a liar, that's lawlessness. It's rebellion. Does that make sense? Let, let, let's imagine uh, that, this, ooh, this is about, let's imagine uh, that, that, that Robbie's had four wives while he's been married to Chrissy, right? And then he met Jesus. And so he decided he had to be faithful to his first wife and get rid of the extra wives, some of whom were officially wives, some who were not. One lived in Utah, whatever. They were spread around the world. Okay, so if, if, I, if I get radically, genuinely saved, I used to be married to four women. Now I'm gonna be faithful to the wife of my youth. Her name is Christy, you've met her. I become a Christian, right? How many of you would say, well, don't worry about the law. You know, you're in Christ, you're saved, you can have multiple wives. Would you say that? Of course you wouldn't, right? So when it comes to things like interpersonal morality, sexual morality, theft would be another example, right? I mean, raise your hand if you've realized that in some ways you're on the take. You better get your hands up. Well, you don't have to, that's the spiritual job. Not my, it's not my job, but... But the, but the bottom line is we're all on the take. There's a little thief living in my heart all the time. There's a little murderer living in my heart all the time. But I've been saved by the grace of God. I've not been saved to become more of a thief. I've been saved from that. I've not been saved to become more of a murderer. I've been saved from that. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says here that they're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, right, that's a very strong critique. He's saying, you're a law to yourselves. You talk about God, what God says all the time, but you don't actually love God or what he said. You're lawless. You're full of lawlessness. So back to my weird, important Bible, Presbyterian angle point. Those who are rescued by the grace of God love what God says, including his law. That, that, that's, that, that's, not, that's not a collision with justification by faith at all. That's not a collision with any, any, any teaching about grace, any biblical teaching about grace. We become those people that we, we want more and more to know what does God want for us? And we, we run in the path of his commands and we trip a lot, but, but, we, but that's our, our, the new heart wants to walk in God's ways. Does that make sense? Because I don't think anyone in the room would say, oh, we want you to become more deceptive. We want you to become more violent. We want you to become a, an adulterer, right? That's not, no one wants that, right? So, so the law covers all those things, but the law also covers, I mean, the, the essential summary of the law is to love God and love your neighbor. And the definition of loving your neighbor is to treating your neighbor the way you would be treated. And to live differently is to live lawlessly, and this is where it gets challenging for us because our culture from the day we were born has told us in countless ways through images, through advertising, through relationships, through all kinds of ways that you got to take care of you. And the most important person in your life is you. And if you're not happy, it's someone else's fault. And just think about it. I have been discipled, not by my parents, but I've been discipled to believe that the whole of my life. The point of being human is to get more now, to enjoy more now, to have more than you. And if I have less than you, to be mad at you about it. Like that's the whole point of being a human. Does that make sense? Our culture has shaped us to believe all those things, right? And that's, that's, that's the epitome of emptiness. And it's the opposite of what God says is true about us. Am I making sense? And so one, one thing that a disciple does is say, oh, since God is, is leading us, not just me as an individual, but leading us to live in a new way, I need to be attentive to the ways I've been mistrained to live and misshaped to think about myself and others. 
And our culture is superlatively individualistic. Have you ever seen one of those maps where we compare like Western people to Eastern people? <laughs> Have you, ever, you ever seen those maps? You know what I mean? So we're, we're way over here. Okay, all right, good. Now let's uh, go down to verse 29 real fast. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is Matthew 23. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Well, what's wrong with that? Jesus says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. <laughs> so Jesus said, no, right now, because you're rejecting me, you're proving that you're the, you're the spiritual descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So Jesus is the eternal word of God. He's shown up, he's in Jerusalem with God's covenant people and telling them straight truth and their fingers are in their ears. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're the, you're the children of them. You're, you're the true children of the people that murdered the prophets. And ironically, they're like adoring the, 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 you know, the cemeteries where the prophets are buried. They're like, oh, we love the prophets. If we had lived when our forefathers, we would not have done nothing. We would not have sawn Isaiah in two. No, 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 no. And they're rejecting the great and final prophet, God's own word, right? And so look at this. Look, there's a parallels. So flip over with me. We'll come back to Matthew 25, maybe. Um, but look at Matthew, look at Luke 6. There's a parable about God's people and our ear plugging. All right, so pay, Luke 6, 20 to 36. So this is interesting. This is actually Luke's, this is the Sermon on the Plain, which, which is a very great parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. That is not a problem. The things that Jesus said on the Mount, he would have said on the plain and in private and in public and in morning and in evening. So Jesus said the things we have him recorded saying very often. So it's not a contradiction that you have these sayings on the mountain and these sayings on the plain. Um, we, he said these things. These, these are the characteristic teachings of Jesus. And that's why you have him on the mountain in Matthew 5 through 7, on the plain in Luke 6. This is just what he said everywhere all the time. So he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That means the kingdom of God belongs to you. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil not just in general, but on account of the Son of Man. So here's what Jesus is saying. I'm here, I'm the Son of Man. I'm actually the Messiah that y'all been waiting for. If you've identified with me and it's cost you a bunch, you're great. You, you, you bet on the right horse. And every day it's costing you, it's worth it. That's what he's saying, right? If, if you are with me, you're fine. Even though it may have cost you everything because I'm the guy and you're with me. We're gonna be fine. That's what he's saying. That's what he means here. Okay, so look what he says. So basically, verse 23, rejoice in that day. Rejoice in the day where people really pour the heat out on you because you identified with me. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. See that theme again? Oh, they're relating to you the way they did to Micah and Isaiah and Amos, etc. I promise you, those guys are fine right now. Not the people that mistreated them, but the prophets who were faithful, they're fine and you're gonna be fine. That's what he's talking about. Okay. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So let me just back up. Verses 22 and 23, here's a, here's a theme, a bucket to put all those words in. God's people have a history of plugging our ears. That was in Matthew 23, and now it's here in Luke 6. Your fathers were the ones who didn't want to listen. So God's people have a history of plugging our ears. That's worth thinking about. And beyond that, that's worth praying about. 
Because God's people have a history of saying, I don't want to hear what God says, especially about certain topics. Okay, in 626, God's people have a long history of preferring nice liars to faithful teachers. And that's worth thinking about. I'll, I'll, I'll do verse 26 again. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So you see what's, see what's being said there? So this is one reason why I'm the most dangerous person in the room. I have the mic more often than most people, and I love it when people like me. So one of the most important things you can pray for me and for our church is that whatever the truth is, I'll say it, and I'll say it, and you know, this is, my mother reminds me of this sometimes, and you probably run into this. It, it, at my heart, I'm an encourager. And, and, and what I love is to tell you how much God loves you, which is true. <laughs> and I love to celebrate the grace of God, which is you know, immeasurable. And I love to talk about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the justifying work of Jesus Christ, and the future glory that's coming to all those who believe in him. And I love all that stuff. And I like to talk about it all the time because that's fun. And, and one way you can pray for me and for our church is that I'll, I'll be equally committed to saying whatever's true because that's what we need, right? It's just really important that we're faithful. God is building his kingdom with the widow's might and he doesn't need uh, his leaders to be super gifted, but he requires that we be faithful. And that's what he holds us accountable to. So if you really wanna pray for me, pray for me because the day's coming where I'll be held to a higher standard than you. And that's really clear in the Bible. Okay, um, and my temptation is to shrink back from the truth so you'll like me. Because people-pleasing is my, my natural way of being in the world. It's died with Jesus Christ. But the old man, he lives. Okay, so now let's look at this next little section here. Verse 27 and following. But I say to you who hear, so that's so interesting, isn't it? God's people have a history of plugging their ears. God's people like nice, friendly liars more than faithful truth tellers. But I'm saying to you who, who hear, if your ear's been opened, I have words for you. Love your enemies. Now that's the whole paragraph in three words. But what I want you to see here is the contrast between pagan love that anyone can do and godly love that's a, work of, that's a miracle of grace. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, let's just imagine that 24 people, that's two dozen uh, people uh, at Cover Christian Church, like through the promised grace of God and the power of the spirit, like full-throated, full-hearted, we were just living that out. That little paragraph. Do you think our neighbors would notice that? I don't know about you. I've been in rooms in the last two years where it felt like a whole bunch of stuff other than Jesus was the most important stuff. And I'm watching families get to where they can't really actually talk and like each other. And churches, I don't know if you know it, but churches are like getting ripped apart because we don't agree about not the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, salvation, <laughs> love, you know, but like stuff that's like way out here. I don't know if you've been, like, I, it, sometimes it feels like every room is like awkward Thanksgiving, you know what I'm talking about? I feel like I just go in from one room to another, it's awkward Thanksgiving. And another alternative, the, the alternative to awkward Thanksgiving is not that I'm gonna be nice to you if you agree with me about every little thing, but I, may be, I might particularly bless you if I disagree with you. I might, I might go out of my way to lovingly serve you because you disagree with me and because you want to see me go down. My response to that is to treat you the way I want to be treated. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. In this context where they are, these people are poor agrarian. He's got Galileans with him, right? Poor agrarian peasants. They've got Romans around. They've got Herod and his crazy cohort breathing down their necks. There's just a whole lot of people who have more power than they have that are out to get them. And Jesus is like, I have a plan for us. We're going to treat them really well. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> but these guys over here have these curved swords. Can we get some of those? You know, like that would be, it'd be more fun. And Jesus is like, nope, we're going to pray for those who persecute us. We're going to bless those who curse us. We're going to lay our lives down for those who mistreat us. And of course, who's the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of these words? Yeah, Jesus himself, which is great. Okay, now that's the love that, that we're called to, which is impossible. There's some really good news about that, <laughs> right? Have you learned that you're not a love generator, but a conduit? If you're the ultimate generator of love, forget trying that. But that's not what you are. You're a conduit. You were made to, be, to receive God's love. And that paragraph is exactly how God has loved you and me in Christ Jesus, right? You see that? See that reflection of the gospel? God loved his enemies. He did good to those who hated him. We cursed him and he adopted us, <laughs> right? And, and, and to adopt us, he sent his son to pay for our sins and make us his very own. This is, God, this is exactly how God treated us. Okay, so let's look at, let's look at pagan love. Um, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Here's what Jesus is saying. Anybody can treat their buddies well. That's what Jesus is saying. It's very natural to pat your back when you pat my back. It's, it doesn't take any power from God to be nice to nice people. It doesn't take any power from God to promote my tribe. It doesn't take any power to say War Eagle if I'm in Auburn or to say Roll Tide if I'm in Tuscaloosa if I'm neutral because I'm neutral on that one. I'm sorry, I'm Switzerland on that one. But if I'm in Auburn, I can say War Eagle. If I'm in Tuscaloosa, I can say Roll Tide. Sorry for all that. But anyway, like that's not hard, right? It's not hard. It's not hard to wear a maroon shirt in, in Tuscaloosa. That's, that's what he's saying. It's not hard to be kind to people that are on your team. It's not hard to promote people that are promoting you. That, that's just natural, right? And so Jesus is pushing us to see, are we living like generators or conduits? Okay. And if you do good to those who do good, da, 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 okay. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, lend to sinners, give back the same amount. Okay, so that's, that's the, pa the pagan love is just the most natural thing. It, it actually benefits me to be good to you. So of course I'm good to you. The chief beneficiary of my niceness to you is me. So I'm really serving me by serving you. Verse 35, but love your enemies. He comes back to the point and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be children of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And the interesting what Jesus just said there is true godliness right? True godliness is being kind and ungrateful to people that are evil, being merciful, right? See, see right there? 
in verse 35 and 36. True godliness is treating people who are hurting me the way God treats those who oppose him. That is to be like God, right? And so it's so important to not dodge what it's saying because if you see it, you're like, well, I can't do that. And when you look at it, you say, I can't do that. God has you right where he wants you, where he wants you to think about if you're a generator of love or a conduit of love. Because in Christ Jesus and in the power of the spirit, as beloved adopted children of God, this is what we can do. Not by ourselves, but through his great power, right? God has enough love to conquer me and to help me love people that oppose me. And guess what? We're, uh, we're part of this thing called the church. Now just think about it. We've all been, we've been part of churches. I've been part of churches my whole, I don't remember a day I wasn't part of a church. And guess what part of my life I've had the most opportunities <laughs> to relate to people well when they weren't relating to me well. Church life would be, one, would be top two, right? Family <laughs> and, and church life, right? And, and that's just how it is. Okay, keep going, gotta fly. All right, now look with me at Luke 10. And we'll, we'll wrap up here. So that, that saying, Luke 6, Jesus is saying, Love your enemy. So here, here's how that relates to our study of how we're supposed to relate to people in great need. If I'm supposed to treat the person who's treating me really badly well, I mean, it goes without saying my neighbor who's a widow or who, who's fatherless or the person passing through town, think about it like there, there are times where we see people that are different as dangerous and potential enemies, right? And that doesn't come from the Lord. But the Bible assumes that we will have enemies. And here's something that we don't talk about enough. The Bible assumes we're gonna suffer and that life is hard. So I was, I was praying with two people today who suffered a lot recently, one who suffered for years and years and years. And as we were praying together, uh, one group of people in our church was brought to mind. And that was the group of people in our church that have, that have adopted uh, people from really hard situations and the people that are fostering children from really hard situations. And one thing they've done by caring for the fatherless in that unique ways is they've signed up for a big measure of suffering. And there are brothers and our sisters. And so we have a great opportunity to like, you know, flex these muscles of other centered love by walking with them, supporting them. But, but I, as I was praying with them today, I thought, you know, we have not talked enough. I went out, and we in the sense means me. Uh, I have not talked enough about just how clear God is in his loving kindness to his people that Obedience often leads to suffering. Now, not forever, but obedience often leads to suffering and alienation and struggle. And we just, we just, we should be really open about that. We, we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't suppress that truth. Because then we won't be ready, right? When life is hard, we want to have prepared each other to be ready for those hardships. So, okay. Now let's look at Luke 10, 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, this is Jesus, to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the lawyer, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Um, so by the way, Jesus here is not saying, yes, you're saved by your works, right? 
to love God and love your neighbor basically is, is the, the, the right summary of what God requires of us. And it requires faith and faithfulness. To, 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 to love God, I have to believe that he exists and, and want to worship him. A dead person can't do that. Only someone made alive can do that. And to love my neighbor um, requires faith that God is going to meet my needs and faithfulness. And I'm walking God's way. So, so sometimes people in our context, we tend to treat these passages like foils for one doctrine, which is justification by faith. Of course you can't do this, but Jesus did it for you. That's true, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Just to be really clear, Jesus here is not setting you up to believe in the doctrine of justification by faith. He did it for you. I believe in it, but that's not what this passage is about. He's actually wants to talk about what it means to love our neighbor and who is our neighbor. And that's the question that comes up. Okay. Let's see. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this, the questioner, desiring to justify himself, there it is, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. So Jesus is just spinning a story, right? He's telling a story. This is a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem, pretty high, down to Jericho, pretty low, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him. And they left, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So, that's, so there's the contrast, right? You have the priest who went by. I see the Levite, uh-oh. And then you had the Samaritan who treat him really well, treat him the way that I'd want to be treated. The question then is, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, that's a pretty good story. <laughs> so let's, let's break it down for a minute. Um, who are the two people that Jesus picked that, that failed to be a neighbor to the one who left Jerusalem, went down to Jericho, probably a Jew like them. Who are the two, fa who are the two failures? Uh, yeah, yeah. They're religious professionals, right? The people that like to wear long robes and sit in their best seats and tell other people what to do, right? In the moment, on their own, well, it's just you and me. I see you. I ignore you. I have important things to do. That's interesting detail, isn't it? A priest was going to die when he saw him pass by on their side. Likewise, a Levite, he came to the place, saw him pass by on their side. You know, they might have had some significant stuff to get to. Conference of Levites, you know what I mean? Really important teaching on the law. Maybe some of the teaching about caring for the poor. Anyway, um, so, so who, who's the person that, that shows the compassion that proves, proves to be a great neighbor? Yes, yeah, Samaritan. Why is that significant? I think everyone in the room knows it, but why, just say that loud. Why is that significant, that it was a Samaritan who actually did the right thing? Yeah, they, they looked down the Samaritans. Let's put it this way. They hated the Samaritans. They did look down on them. And there was a lot of like, animosity, animus between these groups, right? And so, so it's just interesting to think, now why would, why would Jesus make that kind of person the hero of the story? That's worth thinking about. That's worth meditating on. It, it, if you start working on it, it's almost like I have to think of my neighbor, not only as those 
who are in need and might need my assistance, like life-saving assistance. But some of the people that I see as my enemies might actually be potential partners in doing good. And some people that I view as enemies might even be exemplars, exemplars of like how to live in this world. Now, that could be shocking, um, but I've learned that to be true. There have been people that in the past that I didn't trust by cultural habit, and then when I got in their presence, I realized I had a lot to learn from them, which is just interesting. All right, so what did, what did the Samaritans do? Just look at it real quickly on your own and shout out some things. What, what are the categories of, of care the Samaritan gave? Yeah. Yeah. The first thing is he went to him. <laughs> he didn't go around him. He engaged him and he bound his wounds. He went to him and he, and he, he met the, the initial need. You're wounded. And so he dressed the wounds. All right. And then what was next? Yeah. Yeah. He set him on his own animal and said, you need help. I'll walk and took him to the inn where he could rest and recover. Right? So he, he got him to a safe, he, he met his immediate need and got him to a safe place. All right? And then he brought him to the inn and, he, and there he took care of him in verse 34. The next day he took out some money and did what? <clears throat> yeah. He, he gave it to the innkeeper and was like, hey, you meet his needs. And then what, what was the last thing he did? Yeah, he's gonna come back and check on him and pay his bills, right? He is gonna come back, right? Which implies making sure he's okay, but also like taking responsibility. That's like what John Fountain said yesterday, uh, Sunday about what redemption is, is taking responsibility for another person's need. So this person is actually acting here like the Goel, the, the redeemer, the, all those laws of redemption in the Old Testament. That's what you do. You, you go and you take responsibility for the person in need. I know I got to hustle because it's already 12.05. I'm going to really hustle. Um, here, here's how I want to end this thing. And next week we'll come back and we'll look at, at Paul's writing about caring for the poor. The, the, the bottom line here, the reason I chose these teachings today is, and I, I wish we'd have done Matthew 25, but we didn't. That's all right. The, the reason I looked at these today is the, the heart of Jesus's teaching, right, are treat your enemies with love, and love your neighbor. And the definition of neighbor from this paragraph is the person in need that God providentially puts in your place, right? This is not a parable about go run around town and find people in need. This is be attentive to the person in need that God puts in your path and to respond to them with love. And so it's really important to say, I'm gonna close up saying two things. Number one, we're now, we're now part of a family. Our culture has turned us into individuals, even into individual disciples. But just remember that you're connected to a big family. So if, if God brings, you know, uh, someone in great need into Martha's life, if Martha concludes that she now is the sole caregiver of that person, uh, that's a bad decision, Martha, don't do that. Uh, look around this room and see, we have a big family to help meet needs. That's one of the things we said to the people we're praying with today who are getting crushed by their sorrows and their struggles. We're like, hey, can we go with you? Who is going with you? Who, who else can fast and pray? Because you're not meant to bear this on your own. So I want to end by saying that, but here's the second ender. The, anybody remember, it's not printed here intentionally. What's the very next story after the story of the Good Samaritan in, in Luke 10? Two women, two sisters, Martha and Mary. So here's what I love. Luke's a really good writer, and we believe in inspiration. Right at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, which is 
hey, pour yourself out and take responsibility for people that God providentially puts in your path, no matter what their need is. Lay down your agenda and, and, and meet their needs. The very next story, Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house and Martha is busy, 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 busy. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and hanging on every word. If our study from the, the Pentateuch to today has told you, I need some heart work. I need some, I don't need any new ideas. I need some interior change about how I relate to people who are suffering, who have poverty, who have need. I have a solution for you. <laughs> Sit at Jesus' feet. Spend time with Jesus. Be reminded how greatly you're loved. Spend time with your Savior, because that's what happens, right? Martha tries to rebuke Jesus for, for not rebuking Mary. <laughs> Lord, why are you, don't you see I'm doing all this? He's just sitting there. And Jesus says, yes, she's chosen the better portion. It's good to do good stuff. It's better to sit in Jesus' presence and hear his voice. Oh, Lord Jesus, you love us greatly. Would you keep remaking us from the inside? Grant us softness of heart. Dig ears for us that we would hear your voice, know your love, and be strengthened to bear fruit that brings honor to your name, health to our bones. Good for our friends, our whole church, our neighbors, and even people that would see themselves as our enemies, especially teach us to love them well. In Jesus' name, amen.